there are things that have been slotted in pre-seed, right, and pre-series A or seed extension. So these three terms have come up. How do you do? You have, did anybody ever give you a definition of these? I'm wondering. Can you define no. what they are? <laughs> Not no. And they okay. and they're so showing up in all the answer. books too, yeah. right? Like, and and nobody knows. And it kind of is right. The the, the, re- the answer seems to be like we made that no. up because there was a lot of money around. Well, here's the thing. The reason I asked you for the definitions is because I don't know them. Oh man, <laughs> I've been doing this for eleven years. <laughs> this week in startups is brought to you by Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at Lemon.io. Go to Lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. BetterHelp. Providing access to easy, affordable, and private professional counseling anytime, anywhere. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash twist. And Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. For the challenges you face as a startup founder, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is here to help. The platform provides founders with free resources like Azure Credits, development tools like GitHub, mentorship resources, productivity software, training, and so much more. The program is open to all and takes five minutes to apply, with no funding required. Learn more and sign up at aka.ms slash thisweekinstartups. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday. It's VC Sunday School, followed by This Week in Climate. I'm here with Molly Wood, who is in month six of being a venture capitalist, halfway to year one. And uh, every Sunday, if you go through the archive, we do a little VC Sunday School where Molly tells me about what she is uh, working on and maybe some questions or advice she might have or dialogue she wants to have around the job of being a capital allocator. What have you got for me this week and the rest of the audience? I know. I, God, I love this time of the week. And also, I got to say, I had a funny um, conversation yesterday, a second time. Now I've been here long enough that, you know, founders yeah. are starting to boomerang. We're having follow-up calls, like based yes. on to find out where they are with the business now. And it was a very funny conversation because I had talked to this guy in February. So like mm-hmm. five minutes after I started. And right. then yesterday we had a, the, a whole other, you know, catch up. And he was follow like, up. boy, I got to say, like, side note, you're like a totally different person. And I was like, really? Is it the power, Bob? And he's like, no. <laughs> you know what you're doing. <laughs> I know what I'm doing now. I'm getting yeah, my, like, like, wow. my mini MBA every day here. Exactly. Uh, well, right. I mean, there is something to that. This is why I prefer not to say no to founders. Um, I say not yet. Uh, yeah. Now, it's because a lot of times, you know, they might be working on an idea, like, let's say, direct to consumer that you know, it's not for me, but I say, hey, let's talk in six months. Maybe you figure something out, maybe a pivot, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'd love to catch up with you in six, 12 months. And sometimes I'll even give them a benchmark. Hey, when you get 10 customers, that'd be a good time. You have one customer now and it's your previous employer. Hey, when you get 10 customers and you know, more than half of them are not people you know, that'd be a good time for us to catch up. So let me know. And then I'll put a little reminder for myself in my calendar uh, yeah. or somewhere. You know, It really so, works. It's fascinating. People are doing homework. Recommend the homework. Highly recommend the not yet. Mm-hmm. Agree. And not yet with a with a milestone or with a goal. Because we agreed have- upon an agreed upon milestone that yeah. would make it give you something to talk about because nothing is more frustrating than taking that call again. And it's like nothing's changed. And now you're on the call as a VC. Listen, I'm talking from the VC perspective here. You get on the call and nothing's changed. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, it is six months later, you do realize um, that nothing's changed in the business. So although we're getting to know each other, 
better what you've actually proven to the VC. Now back to the founder side, the VC yeah. feels like their time's wasted and they feel like, okay, this founder can't get anything done in six months. On your side, don't take a, a follow-up meeting unless you've got major progress or else you will have proven to the VC, I can't GSD, I can't get stuff yeah. done. I didn't take the note. Way One to night. keep it clean on a Sunday there, J. Cal. I'm trying on a Sunday. That Praise <laughs> the Lord. Praise Jesus. <laughs> We're going to get stuff done here. <laughs> it's get already the most done. blasphemous segment ever. We're just going to lean in. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple things have been coming up over and okay. over. Obviously, a lot of those things are related to valuation yes. and uh, what you like to call clearing market yeah. in these conditions. And one of them that we've been talking about a lot lately is, of course, valuation yeah. and the idea of reconsidering valuation. And We've talked a lot about how valuation is set by the market, but also that it can be estimated as a function of multiples. And you had a really good explanation for this internally that I think our audience will really benefit from. And sure. I would too. Not okay. that I wasn't listening because I was, but I want to yeah, hear yeah. it again. <laughs> oh, but no, I'm going to go through it one more time. Um, yeah. So we have a Tuesday investor call. Most firms do it on Monday. We do it on Tuesday. I like everybody to be a little more prepared. So give them that extra Monday, you know, and Monday morning, uh, Tuesday morning to, to get their ducks in a row. Monday morning is a little intense. Um, firms that do that, sometimes people are up on Sunday night having to do work instead of watching HBO shows. So right, yeah, I try great. to take it easy on my millennial staff because <laughs> I know the Gen Z staff, mm -hmm. I know they're living their best lives on the weekend. Um, so if you are meeting with a company and they have three term sheets, well, the valuation for the company has been set. It's somewhere between the high and the low number of those, you know, top and bottom term sheets in all likelihood. And in some cases, maybe they go get a fourth to beat those three. So you kind of have a range, don't you? And, and you as the, you know, latest uh, investor don't have too much work to do other than make the decision, do you want to be in this company? And then the valuation is going to probably be plus or minus 10% of that collection of numbers. Um, the market has established the price. And again, these are private market companies, not public market companies, public market companies have shares that trade, you know, typically five days a week. So uh, you know, every minute, the, 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 the value of the company is being evaluated for better or worse, it can be hyped, it could be undervalued, it could be anywhere in between, but you do have, uh, you know, uh, a free, freely trading marketing shares, as opposed to private companies, where you actually have to negotiate the share of sales, uh, the sale of shares. So if you were looking at a multiple, there are a couple of conditions and boundaries we need to talk about. So one of the boundaries in the early stages, yeah, they're going to dilute 20%. And they're going to need a certain amount of money to achieve a certain number of goals to reach the next milestone in our industry. So let's talk about a company that's a SaaS company with 100,000 a year in revenue. And they've already gone through an accelerator. So they raised money like 100, 150k at about a $2 million valuation. And then they did, let's say, I don't know, they raised $600,000 at a $6 million valuation. They did a small round just to add a developer and a sales executive and a product manager for a year or so. Mm -hmm. um, so they diluted 10% there. So now they diluted the company six or 7% in the 7% in the accelerator stage, 10% in the seed stage. And now they want to do a pre series A as they're calling it these days. So uh, or some people might call it a seed extension or a seed plus. And they value the company at 10 million 100 times their annual revenue. So you take so how do you get to that annual revenue? Well, if you took last month, and you times it by 12, right, you would be taking what's called the run rate this mm -hmm. month times 12 months. So you're taking the latest month and times it 12. Some people might calculate the run rate, take the average of the last three months. So if that was, let's say 40, 60, and 80k, that'd be 180. Okay, you take the average of 180 at 60. 
you know, and then you times that by 12 and you get to whatever 700 uh, or so. So there's different ways to calculate that. Some people like in public markets, sometimes will look at the forward looking revenue. So they'll say, okay, they're growing 20%. They're at 50% this month, they'll be at 60 next month, they'll be at 72 the month after that, whatever it is, you know, they, they, they start working through that scenario, they build a spreadsheet, and they give them credit for 20% growth month over month into the next year, calculate the next year's revenue, uh, and the valuation based on that. Hmm. So you divide the valuation by that amount of revenue. Is it the previous 12 months? Well, that's intellectually pretty easy to do 12 real numbers. So you know, you're doing this deal in January, you just take last year's January through December. And that's your take that and divide it into 10 million. So if it was 100k previous revenue, you divide it in there, it's 100x. Now, if you mm-hmm. do forward, and the company anticipates it's going to go 5x in revenue, you know, in 20, you know, going forward 12 months, well, you divide that 500k into 10 million, it's 20 times. Pause on that for a second. If the last mm-hmm. 12 months were 100k in revenue, it would be 100k multiple. And if in our meeting, somebody said it's a 37 multiple or something. And I said, trailing 12 months revenue, forward, or current month times 12 run rate, how did you calculate it? And so I think that calculated on run rate, which is a pretty intellectual, uh, honest one to do. Mm-hmm. Another bound condition, if this month, they signed somebody and got them to sign a three year deal and took the three years and booked it on an accounting basis all in this month, even though they're going to deliver the service over 36 months, that would be intellectually dishonest. So you mm-hmm. have to also dig into that, right? Uh, there is this new yes, not to derail us, but there yeah. is this new contractual ARR, new-ish, yeah. right? Or that that's a big conversation. It seems like in SaaS, in terms of calculating ARR, because a lot of it is contractual, hasn't yet been realized. Yeah, looks so good, but doesn't look good. Some people can play games with that. So if I got you to sign a three-year contract, but you're playing monthly, oh, we don't need to give you credit for the three years. You know, they can cancel. What's a cancellation term in there? Oh, the cancellation term is thirty days. Okay, great. Like I won't sign. Right. Any SaaS deals, I have like a couple of companies that are like jumping over my executives heads and coming to me saying like, hey, I really want to close this deal with your team. They won't sign the deal. I'm like, yes, because I told them we only do monthly. And like, well, we only do yearly. I'm like, okay. And they're like, okay, you'll do yearly. I'm like, no, okay, we only do monthly. We win. (laughs) You're selling the product. I'm (laughs) buying it. Like I get to decide, not you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and the the situation was reversed. Like monthly versus yearly is like, it's a bit of a battle. Um, I understand some people, Sometimes, yeah. you know, if you have like the greatest software, this, this is like software for monitoring conversations by sales executives. Um, and there's like 20 versions of it. So I told my team, like, listen, there's 20 versions of it. The top five are all the same. Pick the one uh, that we'll do monthly and let's test it. And we'll just month by month determine if we want to make a year commitment, but I'm not making a year. A, a year. They wanted a two year commitment. I was like, I'm not making a two year commitment. What are you kidding me? Like that shows that you're not committed. You're not confident in your software. And then they use this BS excuse like, well, we want you to show a commitment. And I'm like, my commitment is using your product and giving you my credit card and you I'm paying you every month. Like, I'm not being asked to buy like 36 months worth of cheeseburgers. <laughs> like, yeah. if, I, if your cheeseburger is good, I come back. If the cheeseburger is not good, I'm not coming back. You, you know, I want to keep you on your toes. And if this a better solution like- comes out for less money, I want to go to that. This is many, by the way, we should clarify that we're talking about being a customer as opposed to investor in this case. Yeah, this and is a also yeah, sorry, went on that J-Cal has had yeah. too many salads for too many days because it's like the third day in a row that cheeseburgers have come up. So I'm going to exactly. say <laughs> Sunday is when you treat yourself. Yeah, exactly. I had, I had a cheeseburger the other night. It's, quite nice. it's like the rock says you, you got to treat bun. yourself. Don't treat you yourself. You oh, yeah, there the you bun. go. Um, um, so anyway, that's that's how you, you, you look at the multiples. And so the question then becomes, is there if there's no market, which is what we're seeing now? Yeah. So we're starting to see, uh, you've actually had this happen two or three times now. And I told you this would happen, you know, and uh, when you were meeting with companies, are new. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, be patient. 
um, you know, a good founder like that good SaaS sales executive who keeps <laughs> emailing me and they're sending me videos, um, like explaining the position. I have to show you these like loom videos. They're nuts. Um, wow. Yeah, they're incredible. I mean, that I like, is I hustle. It's, I mean, they're personalized to me and explaining why, you know, like this is a partnership. I feel like I was like being indoctrinated into a cult or something. Um, anyway, I was like, the person really wants to sell. I know. I'm like, um, I'm a little like halvesies on that. It's yeah, it's pretty great. Anyway. Um, so what will happen in a market is founders will tell you like, Hey, the deal's closing <clears throat> and nine out of 10 times the deal is not actually closing. You'll know if the deal is closing because there'll be another term sheet. They will have sent it to you so that you can review it and request an allocation. If they have not sent you a term sheet, there is no other deal. It is not imminent. Mm -hmm. It's imminent in my definition when there's a term sheet and the person is signed it or they're about to sign it. And then you will either not be the lead, could be asked to be the co-lead or could ask to maybe put in a, a smaller amount than the leads. So long story short, now we're going to get to the point where we have to in some cases, since we are the only funding source, come up with a valuation ourselves. And that's a whole different, uh, you know, thing we have to unpack. Yeah. When you're scaling your startup quickly, hiring engineers can slow you down like nothing else. Well, here's some good news. Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in 48 hours. What's Lemon.io, you ask? Well, they're a marketplace of engineers from Europe, and they'll match you with a candidate within 48 hours. And if it doesn't work out, they will replace the developer right away. There's nothing to lose. There's no downside here. They test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. And guess what? When you hire in a European time zone, you're going to have developers working basically 24-7. You're going to go faster than your competitors, and you're probably going to beat them. Launch portfolio founder Drew Fabricant said Lemon.io was a game changer for his startup, Scout. Well, Drew was under the gun to hire a developer with a very specific skill set, and Lemon.io delivered a great candidate, and they were a pleasure to work with. Not only did Drew find exactly what he was looking for, but Lemon.io also delivered them a second engineer just as fast. So if you could use a full-time or part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist. That's lemon.io slash twist. And you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with a developer. What a nice offer. Thanks, lemon.io. The other question I have about valuation is uh, that increasingly I'm meeting with a lot of companies that don't yeah. have a lead. That is 100% yeah. becoming more and more and more common. So I think us having those valuation conversations is just going to keep being more common but for the ones who do mm -hmm. have a lead why are they so secretive about their value valuation even if they don't have a lead and have sort of a target valuation in mind i have literally encountered like one company that closed around and would not talk about their valuation and another that but was they like, wanted to raise hold on let's just go one by one that company did they want to raise more money they Apparently not, like, why because I was like, are you interested yeah. in raising more money? I, yeah. That would be a conversation I'd be opening to, open to having, but I'd like to know about your valuation. And they were like, yeah. we prefer not to share that. So I'm okay. assuming that was a no on wanting to raise more money. That would be a no on raising more money. Yes. Right. If you're going to raise more money, we, we're going to indigence, see all the documents anyway, and right. we're going to know it. So, you know, if we're sincerely having a discussion about investing. So that sounds to me like maybe and they want it like to be on the nice podcast, maybe, or they want it to be you. Now. But you'll get some of that true. sometimes, you know, people who want to just meet you and they are using the investment yeah. decision as a way to meet you to maybe get on the podcast. That happens to be sometimes or vice oh, versa. That's a good um, thing to be aware of. That's a good, yeah. that's a good note. But then, the, and then the other was, you know, a company that's sort of super interesting, 
pre-revenue, trying mm-hmm. to determine things like that. Yeah. Do you have a valuation in mind? Like multiple times I asked this question and yeah, it's yeah. like, I, we cannot, and it was like, it was a trade secret. So it, they, this is for their target valuation. Do they yeah. have a valuation in mind for this round? So some people have been trained or have the philosophy, I'm not going to negotiate against myself. I'm going to let the market decide. Yeah. And so then you're, again, patience. That's great. Let us know when you find a lead. Uh, and we will be part of that group of people who will consider investing once you've set the terms. Right. Uh, we're, we're not in a situation where we want to lead the round, but we might want to place a bet a smaller bet and we hope you find a great lead who can join your board and, and help you build the company and we might be part of the supporting cast and you know be be helping you uh fill out the round is the term we use in the industry and you need people to fill out the round so now we are part of that latter group so then when they go to the next folks in person they're going to use us and say yeah we got like 12 people 250k each we've got you know about three million dollars and we're looking for a lead to take the other three million now right what do we know now from being part of that collection we're not soft circled we're not committed we are interested in re- reviewing based on the terms and if mm-hmm. the terms come back and they're gnarly we're not doing it so this is where no lead um but you know x amount circled really i would just exit to zero um yeah. i would yeah. just assume they have nothing um that's how i would look at it as a founder too when i'm raising money unless i've got a signed contract unless i've you know got the money in the bank or it's being wired Mm-hmm. You know, nothing actually matters. That's why we did an exercise of tell us what is soft circled, signed, signed and wired money is in your bank account. So we actually came up with a way to let founders be honest, be most honest, because, yeah, you know, a lot of times founders are scared, you know, like, oh, my God, I, I you know, have to, you know, dress this thing up. I got to, you know, I got to convince them. And actually, we don't need to be convinced. We just want reality. At least I was speaking for our firm. We just want to know the reality. We might, we might give you an offer, but if we can't get, you know, ground truth, uh, as we like to call it in the business, we need ground truth. We need to know. And man, sometimes we'll be like, I have a million, but I'll be totally honest with you. It's all soft circle. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, great. Of that million, how much do you think realistically would come in? Not optimistically, but like just conservatively, realistically. Even when you tell them conservatively, optimistically, founders are an optimistic group. They wouldn't be starting a company if they weren't. So they'll say 600. And then I just in my mind cut that number by half at least. Yeah. So I would cut it to 300, 250, something like that. You know, 25% of the overall number, half of their estimate. And, um, you know, there you are. In terms of, you know, creating a valuation, there is a new thing that's happening that I wanted to bring up with you that you might be seeing, which is how do you name these things? We know what an accelerator is. That's for a company that, you know, either has very modest traction or, you know, in some cases, there are some accelerators or incubators that, you know, will just accept somebody on an idea. Very few these days, but they'll look for a prototype, maybe one or two customers, you know, maybe some data, but, you know, very little. Um, And then, you know what a seed round is. Okay, that's a round that's going to be around 10 million bucks, you know, six to 12, six to 15 uh, in the last couple of years. And that seed round tends to be a million to $5 million, actually. Mm-hmm. And that used to be the dollar amount, actually, of Series A's was three to five back in yeah. the day. Then you have a Series A that tends to be five to 10 million, tends to be for 20% of the company. But there are things that have been slotted in pre-seed right, and pre-Series A or seed extension. So these three terms have come up. How do you, do you, <laughs> did anybody ever give you a definition of these? 
I'm wondering. Can you define no. what they are? <laughs> Not no. And no. they okay. and they're so showing the up in all answer. the books too, yeah. right? Like and and nobody knows. And it kind of is right. The the, the, the answer seems to be like we made that no. up because there was a lot of money around. Well, here's the thing. The reason I asked you for the definitions is because I don't know them. Oh man, <laughs> I've been doing this for eleven years. Huh? People started coming to me with a with a precede, and I was like, "What's a precede?" And I, I think by based on my definition. A pre-seed is a company that doesn't want to go to an accelerator and mm -hmm. doesn't want to ask their friends and family for money, but they want to get money from seed funds. Right. But they, do, they want to have accomplished nothing. In other words, they want you to do what friends and family do, but they want to do it at a seed valuation. So they want credit for work they have yet to do. Mm -hmm. And when you meet somebody like that and they're like, here's my idea, here's my deck, and you're like, show me the product, it's not built. Okay, so product's not built. Why don't you go to an accelerator? I don't want to go to an accelerator. Why don't you want to go to accelerate? Well, because I just want the money. I want to skip that step. Right. So, okay. Well, or, and I'm encountering a new archetype that kind of like the pissed off founder, like the one who's like, if I, I know what I want to build and if you would give me the money, I would build it. Yeah, that's a, that is a delusional Which is also founder, what I call yeah. my son. <laughs> right? Well, like I'm like, yeah. are you 15? <laughs> I mean, bless. Hey, I understand a... that they feel like they're in a Mobius strip, right? Like I could do this, but I don't have the money and you won't give me the money until I do it. And I'm like, yeah, I need it's... you to do it. A super naive like approach which is yeah. like i would like to be different than everybody else and what it assumes is like we can read their destiny yeah if you were luke skywalker or obi-wan kenobi or quigon jen or wh whatever jedi we would sense the metachlorian and know that you'll be a great jedi and just give you the lightsaber and you don't have to train it's like you don't get the lightsaber day one yeah you know like you, you have to pick up some rocks you gotta try to levitate some stuff you have to feel the force like it's going to be a process here. That's why accelerators exist. That's why going to your friends and family and asking them for the first 50 or 100K. So like you really have skin in the game. Or maybe you work half time and you work on this with sweat equity. But in a hot market, sweat equity, friends and family goes away. Now that we're going into a recession, you're going to see a level of um, resolute, you know, dogged founders who either work as a consultant three days a week, you know, 30 40 hours a week and then work on their startup 50 60 hours a week and they're putting 100 hours in um and that will be the one you're like wow they're still doing three days a week consulting for facebook you know doing 30 hours of coding for them and then they're doing their startup the other four days a week right for me when i meet them i'm like okay yeah let's let's stop the consulting i'll give you the money to get you those other three days a week back take one or two of them off and then let's put you know get you on your startup you know 60 hours a week instead of whatever and, and so yeah yeah that's what pre-seed is and uh, it's basically an, uh, a way to say, I, do, I don't want to do any work. I want to get money. I don't want to ask. I don't want to do friends and family. I don't want to do the uh, accelerator or anybody's accelerator. I just want to skip the line, so to speak. I want to mm -hmm. skip the training. I don't want to stretch. I don't want to do the weights. Just put me in the game, coach. I want to be a starter. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Listen, the startup grind can be really overwhelming. We all know that. And a ton of people in our industry are dealing with burnout. And you know what? Some of them might not even know they're dealing with burnout. But you know the symptoms. You see it. You're on Zoom. Somebody is fatigued. They have a lack of motivation. Maybe they're irritable. Oh, it's the worst, right? And we associate burnout with work. But that's not the only cause. You ever try to raise kids while running a startup? Trust me, it's not easy. I'm sitting here. I'm working so many days. 
and everything starts to blend when you're a remote worker, you don't get to see people, maybe you're not out as much. Well, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even need to have your camera on if you don't want to. And BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So here's the call to action. It's very simple. Twist listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash twist. That's betterhelp.com slash twist. It's, it's unrealistic. Right. I think unrealistic. We should be generous because it yeah. also like we want founders to have magical thinking. We want them to believe so much in their vision. You know, it's like it's a fine uh, balance. And I, I so I don't want to suggest that they're also like entitled. Right. It could be a oh, combination of naivete. Let's be honest. Like but it's, I, you know, we don't have to believe. I, I, honestly, I don't think we have to coddle anybody. Most of the VCs I know super mm -hmm. entitled uh, yeah. majority of uh, majority <laughs> okay, of founders over the last five years entitled yeah. majority of podcasters <laughs> the last three years pretty entitled, entitled. <laughs> give me a new microphone i want a new setup <laughs> replace my you know i mean look I'm at me i'm, I'm just hiding like, my super fancy microphone right no, now <laughs> look how entitled i am i'm like you know what i want i want the exact same setup go to tahoe and set me up a, a second studio drive up here drive up here and make me i mean i am entitled right and yeah, hopefully yeah. you know like i earned it but yeah um Everybody's been a little entitled. So now the, this concept of the pre-seed or the seed extension or the pre-series A, those are bridges, the next group. Mm -hmm. So for the first one, it's a magical term that people use for, I don't want to build a prototype. I don't want to do sweat equity. I want to skip like six or 12 months of work. Now, the other one, a seed extension or pre-series A is saying, I I'm too proud to say I want a bridge. Right. Or I need a, I, I need an or extension. I need a bridge. You know? Because I raised a bunch uh, early and now I have to pivot because my initial thing didn't yeah. work out. And so now yeah. I'm just kind of like trying to pay for my pivot before I series yeah. A on my new business. Now, there is a way to frame it. So now this one could be two or three different things. One of them is it most likely it's a bridge. You didn't hit your target. So you raised three million in your seed. You were supposed to use that to get to two or three million in revenue a year or let's say a million in revenue for your SaaS product. And then that would have enabled you to do a five to ten million dollar series A. And you only got to 300k in revenue. And when you went to get your series A, you weren't growing, you would have a five month growth and then negative five and then 10 and then negative two. And nobody wanted to do your series A. So you need a bridge, you need mm -hmm. more time to figure it out. Be honest about it, you know, like if you're a founder, in my mind, but they came up with the term seed extension, or seed plus, or pre series. I've even a seen round. seed two and seed, seed three, like in crunch base, I've seen seed two. Yes. And so uh, it's, it's basically a bridge. Yeah. Now, there is an exception, which I have seen, which is I've had founders come to me and say, listen, Jacob, we thought we we're going to hit one, we hit 1.2. And we are in spitting distance of break even. So you know how we said we were going to burn money, we actually made money two of the last six months, because um, we didn't find developers to do this stuff. And more, we landed and expanded with this client. And yeah, things are going really good. We've been really conservative and, and it's worked out. So we still have some cash in the bank. We got nine months of cash. We thought we'd have three to six right now. We got like nine to 12. Um, what do you think uh, about maybe putting in a half million or a million dollars? Our last valuation was 12, but we hit all our targets. We think we're going to go out for a $30 million, a $30 million valuation for Series A. You're interested in putting in a million dollars now at, at 20 million and buying 5% of the company? Well, yeah, mm -hmm. I'd be like, yeah, sorry, mm -hmm. somebody's school. 
That'd be Frackia. Yeah. Sorry, I got <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. Flap, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, frack, frack, frack. Yep, like fracking. It. Frack, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be like right. frack, yeah, frack, yeah. Um, and in fact, I've done this opportunistically. I went to a number of companies and said, "Listen, we read your update. Did you know you're you're up three point seven times year over year? Now it's a small number. Whatever you were at three hundred last year, now you're at one point three, but it's still three point x. You know, you think you might want to, and you have four hundred k in the bank, and you're burning seventy. Okay, you got like six seven months." I think you'll clear market. You want me to put in a million now at this valuation just to give you a little extra breathing room and you take your time and maybe get the v- number up a little more before you raise the 5 million? That actually would make more sense, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. that that's the conversation that can happen, but you got to you got to drill down on that. Also, founders, send your updates. If you're sending updates, that's why. Uh, if you haven't been sending updates and then you start sending them now in the recession, um, that's mm-hmm. better than nothing uh, yes. because let's say your funding sources dry up if you haven't been sending updates and you know, you're an investor, your contemporaries have been sending updates. Who as an investor, if you have 20 portfolio companies and 10 have been sending updates, 10 haven't. And of those 10, six are doing, you know, good, two are doing great, two are kind of struggling. You're going to, and you've only got five more bets to make, six more mm-hmm. bets to make on follow on. You're going to bet, you know, you're going to, you only have the ability to follow on with one third of your 20. You're going to pick the seven from that 10 in all likelihood, or you might pick one of the other 10 and it will be the one that's doing spectacular and claims to not have time to send an update. Um, but you know, you still know the, the top line revenue number. So yeah, this is where this is the exact moment in time of recession where being honest and writing these updates matters more. So if you've been delinquent in doing that founder to founder, I would do it now. <laughs> do yep. it now. Yeah. Now's a good time. All right, we covered a lot of ground in yeah, sorry that went a little long, school. but I think it was a lot of jumping off points. Molly, it's great. Questions. It's so great. It's a, it's so awesome. Well, job maybe next awesome. week we could do Molly just how to come up with the term sheet if there are no competitors and you've yes. got to come up with a valuation yourself. So yeah. maybe you can come up with like maybe three scenarios for me. This level of traction, this level of traction, this level of traction. How would you value, you know, pick a SaaS company, pick a marketplace company. And I'll mm-hmm. just, you know, start with like an, uh, what do they call that? A composite of like companies you're meeting with. Yep. It could actually be some climate ones, right? Because some of the climate ones we're looking at, it's like, we have no revenue. We're trying to do this crazy moonshot. Like, how I mean, do there's you a lot. That? There's science, right? There's hard science. There's our commercializing R&D is a category. It's a category. In climate companies. And hard one. It's a really hard one to figure out. And it's very, very, very much in the category of like, but what if it works? A lot but of times. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we got a great This Week in Climate Startups coming up next. So, stay with us. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in year one. That's why Microsoft created the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. This program provides founders at any stage with up to six figures in resources. Wait until you hear about this ridiculous list of perks. You're going to get up to $150,000 in Azure credits based on your stage and size. You're going to get free access to GitHub's enterprise tier, technical advice from experts at Azure and Microsoft Cloud, one-to-one mentorship from their mentor network, exclusive benefits and discounts from companies like OpenAI, huh? Very nice. And the best part is there are no fundraising requirements. So unlike others in the industry, the Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to sign up and access benefits. It's truly open to any founder, like it should be. And it's not about who you know. It's about what you're building. So any founder at any stage can get up to six figures of value by signing up at aka.ms slash this week in startups. Take a minute to write this down, aka.ms slash 
this week in startups. No spaces, no dashes. Make sure you use that URL so they know you're a fan of the show. Who do you got on this week in climate? I really have been enjoying it, Molly. What do you got this week? I, okay. I love mm. this kind of thing. Uh, okay. Speaking of hard science. So this week in climate, we've got Ether Diamonds founder, okay. Ryan Shearman, who uh-huh. is, uh, in addition to founding this company, Ether Diamonds, um, is a climate tech angel investor in yep. seed companies. So Ether pulls carbon dioxide, okay. you know, the greenhouse gas, out of the atmosphere the to create lab-grown diamonds. So, you know, diamonds, uh, other lab-grown diamonds are actually produced using petrochemicals, including methane, which is like a terrible greenhouse gas. So, uh, Mm. and it's becoming a bigger and bigger deal because people are wanting more ethical, ethically sourced diamonds. They don't want, you know, mining and blood diamonds. So, in 2021, lab-grown diamond jewelry sales were like $5.9 billion. What? Yeah. Holy cow. So, six... Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just wondering, are these... um would a person know the difference between these diamonds if you were to look at them? I mean, and they've gotten they, really good. Molecularly, they are diamonds, but a diamond expert could tell an organic, quote unquote, diamond ripped from somewhere I think uh, with probably? children from, and, you know, lab grown diamond. An expert could tell, but a, but a civilian wouldn't. Yeah, I think that is 100% the case. Is there a price difference? In other words, like if you were to buy a two or three carat diamond, you might be in for 20, 30 grand, right? Uh, for your wedding engagement ring, whatever. Would you save money on this or just save the environment? No, you save money. Um, okay. There's one, let's see, uh, lab grown diamonds can be as much as 60% cheaper. Oh, wow. Than, you know, mined diamonds. Oh, interesting. And so then half of course, off. so half off, maybe more, depending. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the ether lab grown diamonds are cheaper. So I guess then the question is, but socially, yeah. do, will people accept these, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, if you ask a, right. a woman to marry you, are they going to throw this in your face if they find out it's lab grown, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess it depends on how much, uh, you know, yeah. he or she cares about the environment. But yeah. I will tell you that the numbers say yeah. people are willing to accept them because in prior to 2018, uh-huh. lab grown diamond jewelry sales totaled less than a billion dollars. Uh-huh. Okay. And then a short three to four years later, we're up to almost $6 billion as an industry. So there's definitely, that's a pretty good, if we were doing a valuation multiple, we would say that was pretty good growth. Yeah. Yeah, And 50 to 60% cheaper or 40 to 50% cheaper on average than mine diamonds is also pretty hard to argue with. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, like anything that is a business based on scarcity. Um, You know, there'll be less scarcity. So the prices should go down. And then it's just a matter of the diamond lobby, I suppose, can convince people to not buy these. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this young generation, they want to do what's right for the environment, and certainly uh, for human rights. And if you think about just those two factors, human rights, and the environment is a double win. Yeah. So how could you buy a mine diamond? Right. If it's already been pulled out of the ground, that's one thing. If it's, you know, it's your grandmother's diamond ring, no problem. Right. But I don't think this next generation is going to want a diamond that was recently ripped out of a mine by some, you know, poor person or God forbid, a child, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a, in a these conflict diamonds. I mean, this is yeah. great. This is awesome. I, think, I mean, it's actually like a phenomenal industry. And, and apparently, they are, you know, they're way higher in quality than cubic zirconia, or of something course. like that. Like they're, yeah. they are diamonds for all intents and purposes. Yeah. But because they're lab grown, they can also tweak other characteristics mm, like they can make them it. shinier like have more that polish cut. yeah they can like be cut, more symmetric right? like i would think like i wonder if they can make the asher cut or the princess 
cushion cut, whatever these things are. Totally. They can make boring. any cut. They can actually make more cuts. Got it. Because they're fabricated mm. in a lab. So they can have more symmetry. They can like, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's super this interesting. It's going to be like course, Blade Runner. Where ether like, is yeah. like not, and ether is like all of that, but mm. carbon negative. Yeah, it's great. This so is going to be cool. like Blade Runner where like, do you like our owl? You know? Deckard, and it's like, oh, it's, of course, it's not real, but we've got an owl that's better than real. Like, I, it's actually going to flip at a certain point. Like, the fact that some group of people are accepting these at half price, I'm waiting for these to become worth more than the organic ones ripped out of the earth, like the actual quote unquote real ones, and they'll be better. Just yeah. like I'm waiting for an impossible burger that tastes better than a beef burger. That's that's the flippening that I'm waiting for. But this is a, another flippening, which is young people are going to really enjoy getting these. Because they care. Uh, they care. I think that's the greatest thing in the, yeah. in the world is like people are young people uh, and, you know, some older people who actually care, you know, mm -hmm. we saw with Tesla's, we saw with the Impossible Burger, we saw it with people putting solar on their homes. Yeah. People made those three decisions uh, independent. You know, I think the majority of them made those decisions independent of the uh, economics. Yeah. They bought an $18, you know, Impossible Burger early on. They bought a $150,000 Tesla. They could have bought cheaper cars, could have bought cheaper burgers. And they put solar installations on that they could never, you know, in the early days, hope to recoup or, you know, they, they didn't make economic sense. It would have been cheaper to just keep burning oil or gas or whatever. Mm -hmm. So good on good on these folks. Can't wait to hear the interview. That's Stick how markets us. get made. Enjoy. Yeah. Ryan Shearman, thanks so much for coming on This Week in Climate Startups. My pleasure. It's great to meet you. And I just have, feel like I have to warn the audience that they're going to be doing a ton of shopping by the time we're done with this conversation. <laughs> um, tell us if you would... Uh, just like give us the high level summary. What do you do at Ether? Yeah, so this is a it's a rather easy pitch. We take harmful carbon that is warming the planet, pull it from the atmosphere, and, and turn it into beautiful carbon that warms the heart. So diamonds from thin air. Diamonds from thin air. This is crazy. Um, give it okay. Now let's dig a little deeper. Tell us how it works. It's it's because the air part is a big deal, right? Not carbon from the ground. Correct. Now, you know, whether you're talking about a lab-grown diamond or a mine diamond, all diamonds ultimately source their carbon from the ground. So regular lab-grown diamonds in today's market are made with methane, largely. Um, some use graphite regardless. It's, ex it's an extractive process when you, when you go fully upstream. That's a big part of the narrative that anyone who tries to tout regular lab-grown diamonds as a you know, more sustainable alternative likes to omit. You know, ultimately, the carbon is fossil carbon. And you know, we have processes that can use that we can use to turn them into gemstones. We've taken a, a vastly different approach. We take atmospheric CO2, uh, we put it through a, a, a patented process to convert it into an ultra high purity hydrocarbon, so atmospheric methane, we call it. Um, essentially, what we're producing, our feedstock is electronics grade ultra high purity CH4. So everyone else gets that from the ground through fracking, through the crude oil refinement process. We're taking it directly from the air, we're putting it through uh, a, a Sabatier reaction essentially reverse combusting the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, combining that with hydrogen to reassemble CH4 and release O2 into the atmosphere, which is good for you, me, and anyone else who has lungs. And then we take that and we put it into a chemical vapor deposition reactor and we produce the final gemstone in the same exact manner that anyone else would using fossil methane. And we, we do it with atmospheric methane. So at the end of the day, the diamond is 100% made of atmospheric, CO, uh, atmospheric carbon. Every atom of carbon that makes up our diamonds was previously warming the planet. Which is why you say these diamonds are carbon negative, right? They're actually, Correct. it's a positive, ultimately it's a net positive. Yeah. So the manufacturing process is, is net neutral. And then the carbon that's stored in the diamond, you know, a one carat diamond, people say, well, how much carbon is in, in a one carat diamond? 
one carat. <laughs> so <laughs> that one carat of carbon brings us over the threshold. So it is carbon negative by a minimal degree. But what excites us about this is diamonds are this really interesting product to make from captured carbon. Ultimately, it allows us to generate orders of magnitude more revenue on a per ton basis. So it's a force, an economic force multiplier. We can sell that diamond and then take a, a portion of the profits from every transaction and, and utilize that for funding frontier projects in the, in the carbon capture and utilization space. Um, our net impact as an organization, as a company, will come through a lot of those external initiatives as well as other internal initiatives that relate to carbon you know, sequestration, utilization outside of just diamonds, other solid carbon uh, products. So this is an answer to the people who would say, maybe there's better things you could do with direct air capture technology than create luxury gemstones. You're saying, I am also, as it happens, a climate tech investor, and this is a great business that's great for the planet that allows me to reinvest this, this money into other, hopefully, net positive projects. Precisely. I think there's a second side to that coin as well, and it's, it's engagement. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, getting down on one knee. I'm talking about getting people. Oh, right. I get it. Because diamonds. Because <laughs> diamonds. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, mobilizing society at large. You know what? There's something special about diamonds. There's something sexy. There's something there. And it enables us to go out and, and work with today's tastemakers, celebrities, athletes, uh, influencers, and essentially in one small way, make participating in the fight against climate change sexy, fun, and cool. Um, you know, bringing what we're doing and, and, and using it as the foundation to make climate a bigger part of the zeitgeist is, is really important to us. You know, yeah. it, ultimately, for me, for our company, we are firm believers that solving, you know, the, the climate crisis is not a technological challenge, it's a people challenge. So, if we can come in and, and you know, establish this, this really exciting, culturally relevant brand, work with really great, you know, collaborative partners, uh, top tier, you know, luxury brands and, and, and all of the right people to, to have people talk about this when they're sitting around the table. The first thing you do when you get engaged is you show off that ring and we want to be a part of that story. And, you know, it, it starts small and you build momentum. And, and if we can use this as an opportunity to bring people into climate in a way that is low, you know, low friction, you're not doing anything different. You're just buying from a different brand and having that real, real great impact. That's something that's special and something that's unique and something that we're very excited about. Yeah. Um, I have roughly a million questions, but I want to kind of go through a little bit of the process a little bit more. I, one thing I did not realize in reading about your company is that direct air capture exists at a big enough scale to harvest enough carbon for you to do this. Like, well, where is that are happening? Small. So we, we get all of ours from a partner called Climeworks. So, yeah. uh, they built their first plant in <laughs> Henville, Switzerland. This is great. <laughs> See, this is the beauty. Diamonds, right. if, if, you, if you look at you know, the carbon capture and utilization space. How are people making money, right? You can pull carbon from the air, you can pump it underground and, and mineralize it, and then you can sell carbon credits. And if you're lucky, if you're really lucky, you get $1,000 a ton. Mm-hmm. We take that same ton, we turn that in the broad scheme of things, small amount of carbon into roughly about 5 to $10 million worth of diamonds. So we're not talking about $1,000, $10 million in top line. All of a sudden, you know, that little bit of carbon becomes a catalyst. It becomes a fuel to to essentially power this economic engine, and that's kinda, what excites us. Kind of like you're print. Yeah, I mean you're printing money out of carbon, in a manner of speaking. Yeah, amazing. Kind of shocked as you describe it that no one else thought of this. But your experience here, I think, is probably what makes this so successful, right? Previously, uh, you were with David Yerman, one of the original team members on the men's line, 
where you'd already develop new products is my understanding, right? And product collections that featured materials that weren't necessarily endemic to the jewelry industry. Precisely. I, I cut my teeth in jewelry at David Yerman. Um, wonderful company. Got to work on some really, really exciting projects. Um, it's where I met my current co-founder and, and several members of our of our team that we've now brought on. And uh, I was the materials guy. I was the mechanical engineer. I got to you know say, hey, if we're going to make carbon fiber jewelry, I actually have experience working with composite materials. I, I can be the guy who goes to the factory and, and is talking to the people who are doing the wet layup and, and understands you know at a very fundamental level how that works. That was really crucial for what we did. We did some stuff with meteorite, really, really interesting uh, material, the Gibeon meteorite. It's a metal um, that comes from an asteroid. It landed in Africa a millennia ago. And if you cut it and etch the surface with acid, it reveals this Wyman statin pattern. It's, it looks like a circuit board almost, but it's naturally occurring. Really beautiful material. How do you make a luxury product out of that if it's chock full of you know, nickel and iron? And if you leave it out on your counter for a couple of days, it's going to turn, it's going to rust. You'll get a little surface flash rust that happens. So can we come up with surface coatings? Can we deal with this through you know, using sacrificial metals and, and just, you know, the basic galvanic principle to protect that surface from looking like something beautiful one day and looking like something, you know, horrible the next. And it, that's just an engineering challenge. That's chemistry. So I got to, I got to do some really cool stuff there and ended up leaving jewelry. I, uh, I started a, a hardware company, um, did that for five and a half years. And you know, that was my first real foray into, into the world of startups and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, we sold that business in 2018, and this was an idea that came out of a, you know, offhand conversation with m- with my now co-founder. I had just finished reading a book called Drawdown, and at the tail end of the book, it talks about you know technologies that are coming. And I'd read about this new facility in Switzerland that was being built. End up talking to to Dan, my co-founder, about two or three hours later, and I said, "By the way, have you heard of direct air capture? You know, we have a way of chemically removing CO2 from the air. Can you imagine if we could turn that carbon into diamonds?" And that was literally the extent of was the conversation. Was that literally it? That was it. A, a week later, maybe five days later, he calls me up. He says, Ryan, I can't stop thinking about diamonds from air. I said, yeah, neither can I. And I held up a piece of paper that had all of my notes. I'd done like 20 hours of research. And I'm like, I think I know how we can do this. And what we're doing today is not exactly what we cooked up in that first week, but it's remarkably close. 80%, 90% of the way there. We had to add in a couple steps in between just to, uh, you know, to get certain elements, certain processes along the way a little bit more efficient and get rid of some toxins that we weren't aware of early on, but generally, you know, what we're building, what, what we've built and what we're scaling right now is, is what we conceived, you know, over the span of a week in 2018. Wow. How hard was the science? Very challenging. Um, it, It turns out our atmosphere is predominantly nitrogen and you can't have nitrogen in your gas when it's going into the diamond reactor. It stops, it essentially arrests the formation of the crystal growth. So you want that crystal lattice to, to form perfectly. The analogy I've used in the past, imagine trying to nail shingles to a roof of a house in the middle of a hurricane. You know, it's controlled chaos and you're trying to order these carbon atoms and, uh, and nitrogen uh, will react in, 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 that, in that chamber. So you really can't have any nitrogen. So that was a big thing for us is how do we eliminate nitrogen at every step of the way? And it, I mean, this could be even, you know, a, a, a fitting that's not tightened to spec allowing mm-hmm. some atmosphere to, to have ingress. And, you know, we, we're talking about parts per billion scale here. So we, we have to be extremely, extremely careful throughout the process to not introduce elemental nitrogen or nitrogen-based compounds. And, and uh, that underlying technology, that process, that, that is hard to begin with, but there are certain elements of this that hadn't been done before. So we were, we were really kind of crawling around in the dark trying to find our way. We had one breakthrough that 
was uh, the result of a mistranslation between an English speaker and a non-English speaker. Um, it was kind of one of those, hey, we spilled something in the lab and we had a, a breakthrough discovery type of thing. Where really? Dumb, yeah, dumb luck probably saved us nine months. Um, yeah, it, we, we look back and... and Will we understand know, it if you try to explain it? Um, I don't know that I understand it even fully. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, but the gods were on your side is what you're saying at, at, at numerous times throughout this journey, there have been kind of these moments where the universe tipped its hat at us and just said, here you go, guys, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in your corner. And, um, you know, even the, the composition of the diamonds, you know, when you pull a diamond up from the ground, we've been studying diamonds for as long as we've known about them. And we know a lot about diamonds from the ground. We know specifically the ratio of two stable isotopes of carbon that exist in nature and, and what you typically find in a mined diamond. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 have a very well-defined ratio. When you're making lab-grown diamonds from fossil fuels, that ratio is different. So people say, oh, lab-grown diamonds are identical to mined diamonds. Well, yes, they are 100% carbon, but it's not the same isotopic composition. It just so happens that the composition of C12 to C13, that ratio in the air after it goes through our process falls smack in the middle of the bell curve of where you would typically find the C12 to C13 ratio from a mine diamond. So essentially, we are actually producing something that is identical to mine diamonds, whereas everyone else is getting pretty close. Wow. Does that matter to people? We, we did a little research and discovered that the, the lab-grown diamond market is on fire as it is. But I wonder, like, what kinds of questions do consumers ask you about these diamonds? Yeah, uh, you know... For a while, I think the number one leading question when it came to lab-grown diamonds was like, oh, what, is this real? Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in the 70s, we had glass alternative simulants like cubic zirconia that were first developed, and now you've got moissanite, and there's, a, you know, several of these alternatives that are not diamond material. So, I think there was an educational gap that had to be crossed, and, and broadly, we see less people ask that question now. Fewer mm -hmm. and fewer people are, are kind of getting into the fundamentals. They are doing their research online before they're coming to us and engaging with us to learn more. Um, we haven't really yelled far and wide about the the difference in the uh, isotopic composition uh, only because we had IP stuff that was, you know, in process. And now that it's all been filed, we can, we can share that a little bit more broadly, but we have, we've yet to start, you know, pounding on our chest to tell that message. But at the end of the day, we do think that it will lend well when it comes to customer psychology and buying something that is, you know, really more identical. Right. Talk about the process because not only are other my, uh, lab grown diamonds using fossil fuels and methane, uh, it's energy and water intensive. And it sounds like you have, in addition to using direct air capture, designed a process that's less resource intensive overall. Yeah. So the we actually produce a little bit of water as part of our upfront process, which we then use for you know later stages in the process. So we, we, we ultimately are consuming a, a remarkably small amount of water. So w we have no little to no water impact, uh, which is great. Um, we don't want to be just wasting a ton of great, you know, potable water and, and putting that down the drain. Um, I think there are there are certainly others out there that are using quite a bit more than we are. Uh, as it pertains to energy, we have been very diligent about building a power supply chain, you know, that allows us to get as as many zero emissions electrons as possible. So uh, right now, it's it's a blend, predominantly wind, solar. There's a little bit of nuclear peppered in. That takes us only so far. Every time I ship a ring, you know, with a, a beautiful diamond set into it, there's going to be emissions related to that. So anything related to shipping and logistics, we're, we're offsetting through high quality uh, carbon offsets, everything related to sinks. So we, we're, we're not big on avoidance. Every turn we want to bake additionality into what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, we've taken that a step further. We're actually 
a, a financial partner with a, a group called Clearloop, and we are allocating funds for the development of new solar projects in parts of the U.S. that are underserved from a, a re- renewables and, and uh, low emission you know, energy standpoint. So uh, the, the first project was a, a solar farm in Appalachia, you know, an area of coal country. Um, we, so we got, to, we got to do that and bring a responsible, you know, more ecologically friendly source of energy to uh, an area of the country that was underserved. And, and that has absolutely nothing to do with our core business. We're just, we're just happy to drive, you know, impact. And, and this is why we're incorporated as a public benefit corporation. We are the first and only diamond company on the planet, diamond producer who's uh, achieved B Corp certification. You know, so we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're trying at all times to, you know, to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not just to check a box. Yeah. Um, I noticed on the website when I may or may not have been shopping for jewelry that the, for example, underneath um, the products you list carbon footprint offset in years or fractions of years. So I was looking at these $40,000 statement earrings uh, and it said carbon footprint offset 6.7 years. What does that mean? Years of what? So the average American has a carbon footprint of about 16 metric tons per year. Um, I've done a, a pretty deep LCA in my own life, and I'm a little higher than that. I'm around 20. Life um, cycle assessment for correct. those who aren't familiar yet. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm a little higher than the average bear. But we said, all right, based on the 16 ton number, um, we've sold this diamond. This is an amount of profit we can allocate towards all of these you know, carbon sinks. Uh, so working with groups like Charm Industrial, uh, they have a, a pyrolytic process. They take organic you know, waste material. And they essentially, instead of burning it, they put it in a vacuum chamber uh, and they turn it into an oily sludge. And then they can put that back underground. So carbon that would otherwise biodegrade on the surface and vent, you know, likely methane, you know, as as those uh, as that process happens. Now that's not going to happen. We're going to we're going to capture that underground. It's a form. It's like an oil that's that's not combustible. So no one's ever going to want to dig it back up and use it as a fuel source. So mm-hmm. this is a, a really great way of taking. Um, you know, material that would otherwise be contributing to global warming and, uh, and, and have it have a reverse impact. So, um, we, we are definitely happy with the way we've been able to work with these frontier projects and, and bring non-dilutive funding. And hopefully as we continue to scale our business, you know, that can scale as well. And, and, uh, when we map that to our jewelry products, we say for every carat of diamond that we sell, our environmental commitment is to remove 20 tons from the atmosphere. So, a one carat diamond maps to about one and a quarter years. So that's the way we've been doing it thus far. Um, we'll see how how long we can continue to do that with external projects. Spot price in the market today for a ton of CO2 is you know tripled in the last year. So um, ultimately, there there could be constraints where we have to cap it at some reasonable amount. But uh, that probably hits an inflection point as we start building uh, our processes to to produce other carbon based materials. So our underlying core tech and specialty and area we want to focus is taking atmospheric gaseous co2 and turning it into solid carbon so that's diamond as a starter it's graphite for use in batteries as we move towards a more electrified future we're going to need a great domestic source of, of graphite and uh, we'll be able to do that um, and then other carbon morphologies graphene uh, carbon nanotubes things like that interesting so that's the so the longer term play even within ether it sounds like is to develop those materials not necessarily as an outside frontier investment We'll see. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll see how far we take it internally. Um, yeah. it, you know, maybe we evolve into some type of hold co where we've got a jewelry brand and then we've got, you know, other, other products, technologies uh, or companies we spin out. So we'll have to see how that kind of unfolds over time. It's too early to say. Interesting. How it looks, the business model is 
designing and selling jewelry? Is that right? Like, do you sell to wholesalers or is it all, you know, direct to consumer? Effectively? So at the time of taping, we are two days ahead <laughs> of our, uh, our wholesale launch. So we've, we, we got you this just in time, just in time. We announced <laughs> this, uh, you know, to the world in the fall of 2019 that we were doing this. Uh, and then we formally launched in the week between Christmas and New Year's because, you know, it was, it was more about catching people in their home with their families and, and having a cool story to say, Hey, you know what I saw on Reddit today? Um, and, and that worked really well. So we were able to go and build up a, a great base of, uh, pre-orders from consumers and everything's been D2C focused thus far. So. Our bread and butter is custom engagement rings. That's really, we didn't expect it to be that way. We didn't look to position it that way, but. Um, the kids are still doing that, huh? Yeah, they're still doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, on average, you'll get between, you know, 1.9 and 2.2 million marriages in the US every year. Uh, there was a slowdown during COVID, but that was a slowdown in, in the weddings. It wasn't a slowdown in proposals. Proposals spiked. Um, so it, it, broadly speaking for bridal jewelry, for jewelry as an entire industry, uh, and lab grown as a subset of that the last couple of years have been really exciting. Hmm. I would not, I guess it was like you either broke up or you were like, we're in. It was an accelerant for yeah, sure. Yeah. Seriously. Um, there are, you know, other materials in, of course, the jewelry that you're designing like gold. And I noticed that those have a lower year score, but they say they're fair mined. How are you sourcing those metals? So fair mine gold is emphatically the most responsible source for gold on planet earth today. And I say that confidently because when we talk about other alternatives but that like, are positioned, what is like it, what does that mean? Fair so, mind? so the fair mind is organization that a brand or a, oh, it's an organization. Got yeah. It. So think fair trade coffee. Um, okay. you know, fair, fair mine gold, it comes from select or generally more artisanal gold mining operations, but they're, you know, a lot of this happens in South America and other parts of the world. And, uh, the fair mind organization comes in and establishes childcare opportunities for, you know, oftentimes. It's, it's not like, you know, one of the parents in a family goes off to work. Both are, both the mother and father, both parental, uh, figures are, are working in, in this mining operation. What's going to happen to their children during the day? Well, we've got childcare opportunities, educational opportunities, uh, you know, plans to, to graduate some of their laborers into other more specialized roles. Uh, they do all of these things to build a better quality of life, um, to impact the, environmental footprint of those mining operations. So they'll say as part of this, you can't engage in harmful extraction methods. Um, there are a lot of ways we can, we can pull gold out of the ground. Uh, it's not just, you know, digging up, uh, nuggets and sifting in rivers. It's, it's a lot more complex. There's a lot of chemistry that's utilized, but a lot of that is, is really harmful. So they come in and they, and they, they ban those practices. So at the end of the day, you're paying a markup for that gold and we're happy. Mm -hmm. We are absolutely happy to pay that markup knowing, you know, that uh, our source of gold is beyond repro reproach. Other companies like to lean on recycled gold as, as a, you know, a really great thing that they can talk about. But if you understand the process by which we recycle gold, it's not environmentally friendly. So mm. for us, you know, to say, Hey, this comes from electronic waste. Um, what happens to, you know, all of the really harsh chemicals that are used as part of that extraction process, you know, and, and how are they disposed of? And generally speaking, we're not so confident that there's a better path. Fair mind. We can rest easy knowing that it's been sourced responsibly. And even our, our, our plain gold styles on the website, there's no, there's nothing that would just be gold. Every one of them. And the reason you'll still see a small amount of, of offsetting associated with those products is because every, every piece has at least one ether diamond in it. So we'll, we'll tuck one away. We'll put it on the inside of a ring. You know, it's our little nod to the consumer. So even our, our, our quote unquote plain gold styles aren't actually just gold. Yeah. Um, well, and speaking of paying more, I mean, these are 
we should be clear that mined di- uh, lab-grown diamonds can be 40 to 50% cheaper than mined diamonds. Where does your pricing fall? It certainly is luxury. There's no yeah. doubt about it. As of right now, we're priced in the market just about on par, slightly under the cost of a mined diamond. Um, so depending on, on what we're talking about here, um, it, it, it can range. You know, it, It's not that we are completely pegged to it. Pricing in the diamond industry is, is generally compared to what's called uh, the RAPNET index. So when you're, when you're in the industry, you, you trade in terms of percent back or, or the percent off RAP, which is kind of the industry-wide MSRP, right? So uh, RAPNET or Rappaport, this organization goes around and they talk to jewelers, they talk to jewelry brands and different companies in the trade and find out what they're selling things for on a given weekly basis and then publish a new report. This is, this, you know, this is the kind of going rate this week for a D-color VVS diamond. And, uh, and, and the diamonds that we're bringing to market are uh, extremely high quality. Um, I would say they're better than the vast majority of what's available in, in the regular lab-grown side of things. So uh, between that and the complex process that enables us to do what we do and the added impact that the consumer gets with our products that they don't get elsewhere, you know, that all kind of drives to seeing that price where it's at. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you're talking engagement rings, not to be cliche, but I'm sure that people are like, I did not want the cheap knockoff. Like, I want the perfectly, you know, equivalent luxury item that's also better in every other way. Is there stuff that you can do, and I use the term stuff very scientifically, with these diamonds that you couldn't do with a mined diamond? Like, can you cut them with less waste? Do they have any special properties? So, diamonds from the ground are imperfect. Diamonds from a lab are less imperfect. You know, I talked about that storm and, and hammering shingles to the roof. Essentially, the conditions are still somewhat consistent inside the reactor. So there are less soft spots in the crystal matrix. So it's a a more consistently hard material throughout, um, depending on how it's made and how many post-treatment that it goes through. uh, It may or may not have certain internal stresses that could be the same or could differ. So it ultimately depends on on whoever's making it, what they choose to do with the stone, how they they choose to to treat it in, in the mine side of the business. Post-treatment is looked down on stones that are post-treated. You can put a diamond through an annealing process. So you heat it up and and cool it down slowly. Uh, Essentially, what what that does is help kind of reorder some of the imperfections in the crystal lattice, and that might improve its color. So you take a diamond that's a lower color, and you can improve that. Um, When it comes to lab-grown, we don't think that that negative needs to apply necessarily. Everything happens in a lab anyway. You know, what is one additional process? Why should that be? That's my personal opinion. We don't have a stance as a company. Most of our stones go untreated. It's only on the off chance we, we have a batch that comes in. We're like, hey, you know, it'd be great if that was a little bit nicer in color. And sometimes we will do some post-treating. But that's really, you know, one of the only major differences from a material standpoint. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, what we're producing is, as I said before, identical to, to the material that naturally occurs in the ground. The process, you know, that a diamond is made on the ground can take a very long time, billions of years, right? So... Mm-hmm. Diamond yeah. production from the ground is is it's going away. Uh, we hit peak diamond in 2017. So every year from 2017 forward, fewer diamonds are going to come out of the ground. You know, it's crazy. What blew my mind when I when I first learned this a couple of years ago, when you open a new diamond mine, you've done your geological surveys. You know how how big the kimberlite deposit is. Uh, kimberlite is is the igneous rock formation that diamonds are found within, and uh, and they came up old old volcanic shoots essentially. So they're cylindrical deposits that go straight down and. Uh, it's only economically viable to pull that material out at such a depth. Uh, eventually, those mines close. When you open your mine, you know when it's going to close. 
Yeah. And you, we have not seen a large-scale industrial diamond mining operation open up since like the late 90s. So by 2040, 18 years from now, 50% of the production of mined diamonds is going to disappear. Wow. So globally, half the supply is going to disappear in the next two decades. Wow. We're only going to be able to backfill and meet demand with man-made diamonds. So our goal is to get out there and commercialize the best man-made diamonds on the planet. By the way, those listening should not take this as like a incentive to go hoard mines diamond <laughs> diamonds because <laughs> I'm sure someone is out there listening like really I'm going to buy a bunch, um, <laughs> which is not the goal of this conversation necessarily. Talk to me about the um, the investing side. Like, do you have a you are you investing yourself as an angel? Do you have a fund? Is it attached to the company? How does this all come together? Yeah. So when we talk about non dilutive capital, um, this is us acting as a customer, essentially. Okay. Right? So, so you're a buyer. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, our, we do have aspirations for eventually, you know, if this if this business can generate the type of liquidity we, we at this point, almost know it can, um, we'd love to be able to get into that. Uh, we, we'd love to be fairly acquisitive as well, and we'll see, you know, kind of where that takes us. I am personally uh, a climate angel investor, uh, but that hasn't really, Are those worlds haven't mixed yet. I'm not in your syndicate. I'm in, a, I'm in several syndicates, but uh, I'll have to check yours out. <laughs> it's new. It just launched. Okay. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. So at this point, yeah, those worlds are two, two. You know, they're they're two things. They're pretty far apart. Yeah, totally separate. Hey, who knows where things will go someday? Um, you know, we we have kind of wonderful purviews to things that are coming down the pike in in climate. I think what we're doing is it's cool. I, I'm yeah. biased, right? I'm going to say it, but I think what we're doing is cool. So people reach out to us quite a bit, and uh, and we hear about stuff when it's really early. Um, and and that kind of visibility has been great. And I think hopefully someday it's something we could use as an advantage, uh, you know, just having great deal flow. Um, yeah. But it, we're we're way 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 down the road from that. It's cool as hell. I think I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to punch that up a little bit. Do you imagine a time? Big sci-fi fan, and actually the, one of the things that got me thinking a lot about climate and adaptation and resilience was this kind of offhanded reference in a Kim Stanley Robinson book to diamond coating around the bottom of buildings when New York was totally submerged to keep it out. And I wonder, like, do you imagine a world in which this process or something like it could be used to create other materials? Like, could you upend some sort of manufacturing? I know it's maybe not your goal right now because jewelry, but yeah, I mean, so for us, at least for our trajectory, gemstones for jewelry, that's our business today. Yeah. Right. Uh, there are many, many, many and a growing number of industrial applications, high and low tech. Um, it, any, any quantum computing researcher worth his salt is utilizing man-made diamonds as part of that. Um, it's used for advanced medical research and procedures and diamond blades, not even diamond tip blades. I'm just talking about diamond blades, engineered blades that are 100% made of diamond. We can get really, really thin. Um, and they're super sharp, so it's better than metal. It won't dull over time. So there are a wide range of applications. And then obviously just, uh, you know, from an abrasive standpoint, diamond is the hardest material on the planet. So it's, it's a great cutting and polishing agent or medium, I should say. So yeah. that's where we're going to focus. The challenge in going really, really big is a power challenge. So uh, when it comes to chemical vapor deposition, the process by which you can deposit these carbon atoms on top of one another, you, you, know, you need a ball of plasma. And every time you want to double the diameter of that ball of plasma, you're, you're squaring the amount of power consumption that's required. So you want to go from, you know, 50 millimeters to 100 millimeters, whatever your power consumption was, multiply it by itself. So now if you wanted to do something as big as like an iPhone screen, all of a sudden your power consumption is now through the roof. That does not yet make sense. 
mm-hmm. depending on where we go in terms of you know further electrification. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, I I've heard some really interesting things about you know where we are with fusion and and you know what that'll look like from a from a both kind of research level demonstration versus you know full commercial scale. And I think we'll probably have it before those diamond mines all run out. So um, who knows where we'll get? Yeah. And then finally, what what got you into this, the climate aspect specifically? Oh, that easy answer. 2017, uh, we had several hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast and, and uh, you know the Caribbean and uh, you know South American Southeast. And for the first time, climate wasn't this esoteric concept. It was, hey, my my neighbor in college, his family's house collapsed and yeah. the roof you know collapsed on his grandmother. She lost her life. Mm-hmm. Um, or the restaurateur who. You know, it was a, a family friend of my father's who I'd you know been visiting his restaurant for twenty years. It was completely taken off its foundation. Uh, or my friend who moved his all his worldly possessions to his family's home in Texas and stored it all in their garage, including his you know his new motorcycle. And all of a sudden, that was underwater. And this happened in quick succession. I was I was running my last company, and I said, "What can we do to you know help out?" JJ uh, Watt from the Houston Texans was raising you know this this uh, capital to you know, go towards disaster relief. I had a high school classmate of mine who was on the Texans with JJ and I, I you know, I reached out and said, Hey, we've got, we've got an idea. We want to put together kind of a distributed motorcycle ride for charity. And that's really what it was. And, and we, we raised thousands of dollars for disaster relief. And at the end of the night of this event, um, you know, we did an award ceremony and I was standing up on a, on a table, you know, with a mic and did my spiel. And, and as I was walking off, I, you know, we had just kind of shared with the group how much money we had saved. There was, it was so poignant. Um, it wasn't a moment I was going to forget. It was like after that company sold, I did a postmortem on like the the best things that happened in the entirety of my five and a half year adventure with that company, and and uh, that's kind of the one one or two on the list. You know, we had a we had a customer write us a letter saying our product saved his life. I think that probably takes the cake. But uh, but I, I felt so fulfilled. I've kind of been chasing that high ever since. So when the company sold, I said I I need to get into the world of impact. Like it's just unabashed capitalism is a great thing, but free market capitalism probably doesn't exist. And if I'm going to have uh, my way, my legacy is not going to be how many zeros I have in the in back in my bank account. It's going to be the, you know, the impact that I can help kind of bring forth in this world. And I, I wasn't sure what that was going to take, what form. Um, I just knew I wanted to do climate, generally speaking. So I had some some time to kind of look at the problem. And and like I said, I was, I was out there kind of casually looking for a project I could I could get behind. And then that one random conversation with Dan, and, uh, you know, we came up with the idea and I just, once, once I picked it up, I couldn't put it down. Amazing. Brian Sherman is founder and CEO of Ether Diamonds at etherdiamonds.com spelled with A-E. Go look, got it. go look, everybody just go, uh, plow your savings. Into, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I mean, Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is just tremendous. Every disaster is an opportunity for hope. There's just no doubt about it. <laughs> 